You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Please be seated. Uh, It's so great to see all of you here in the room and those of you who are online. Um, So grateful for that choral piece. You know, it takes about 10 weeks for them to put together a piece like that um, with all of the individual recording and then all the mixing, especially that Kim and Alex and uh, Chipper do. So, so grateful for all of the work that, that goes into that. Um, well, this morning we are hearing uh, the word of God that we're hearing her read today is from Galatians chapter five and Luke chapter six, verses 32 through 36. And so our readers today are Jeremiah and Fisher, two brothers, So let's hear them as they read God's word. Let's hear God's word to us. Reading from Galatians. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. A reading from Luke. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those, and if you lend to those from whom you expand, expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting them to, repay, to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well done, boys. Thank you. If you've been with us at all um, over the last few weeks, you'll know that we are in a sermon series that we're calling The Church in a Time of Crisis. We're in this time of tremendous challenge and crisis. We've been in that for many months now. And unfortunately, what often happens in times like this is that um, the worst parts of who we are (laughs) tend to come out and be exposed in the process. And we've seen a lot of that. I've certainly seen that in myself, that what we've seen emerge is what the Apostle Paul calls the flesh, that we've seen a whole lot of selfishness and dissentiousness and fear and anxiety and rage and hatred. And yet I think if you asked almost any of us, we would say that we want to be people who are loving and kind and noble and resilient in the face of adversity. I think all of us want to be people who show love and kindness and, and, and um, who are able to endure through difficulty. And so the question is, how do we become that? How do we become people who are able to model a different kind of community in the midst of crisis? And the answer that scripture gives is, repentance and faith, that we would repent of the ways that we've indulged our flesh and our selfishness and our sin. We'd ask God for for help and renewal from the Holy Spirit and that God promises to actually do that work in us of bearing and cultivating the fruit of the Spirit in us that we would become more like Jesus. That's the goal, friends, that we would become more like Jesus. That's what the fruit of the Spirit are. And so we've looked at so far, love and joy and peace and patience. And today we're looking at kindness. What does it mean for us to be people that are kind in the midst of an age 
that is harsh. Arthur Brooks is a professor at the Harvard uh, Business School, and he was also the former director of the American Enterprise Institute, pretty prominent think tank. And uh, Brooks has been writing and speaking about this for a few years now, what he sees as a pretty dangerous trend in American society and American life. And he, he, what he's observing is what he calls the, a coarsening or harshening of uh, American culture. Now it's, 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 I think it's important to note that there have always been profound ideological conflict at the heart of American society. I mean, from, from the very beginning, just watch Hamilton and you'll see the debates, you know. There's, there's always been a profound conflict at the heart of American society, but what is different, what he observes that is different about the last 10 to 15 years that we haven't experienced in a long time is the rise not just of anger and conflict, but the rise of what he calls contempt. Contempt. And contempt he defines as the conviction of the utter worthlessness of your opponent, the utter worthlessness of the other person. The levels of contempt in our society have been escalating dramatically so that people on different sides of political and social issues don't just see each other as misguided or wrong, but actually as stupid and worthless. When this happens in a society, it dramatically changes the way that we adjudicate conflict. Um, and so, you know, in, if you just see your opponent as misguided or wrong, then you will likely dignify your opponent enough to negotiate or compromise or engage in what I really think is the highest form of moral adjudication, and that is persuasion, to actually seek to persuade your opponent. But if you see your opponent as not just misguided, but actually stupid and worthless, then all attempts at negotiation and persuasion go out the window and you tend to rely instead on coercion. And this is essentially what American political exchange has become. It is coercion, the exchange of power. So it involves rallying your base, stoking the fires of hatred for the opposing side, and then winning enough support to retain power. Arthur Brooks, in an article that I read, he, he recounts recently talking to a politician in a private conversation in Capitol Hill where the lawmaker confided in him that he is feeling anguish over his current vocation because he increasingly finds that to do his job, he has to live and behave as a person that he hates. And so he has to say and do harsh and unkind things, even though he wants to be agreeable and open and tolerant. But he knows that if he does activists on his own side would accuse him of being a weak sellout. And so we've succumbed to harshness. The, the politics and rhetoric of contempt is at an all-time high. Now, unfortunately, this destructive pattern of contempt and harshness has infiltrated the church. You know, I, I, I'm grieved to say this, but rarely today are Christians seen as the kind ones. You know, when we're quoted on, in media, when we're given, you know, sound bites, we're the ones with dogmatic opinions and aggressive tones who are reactive and defensive. Our reflex, especially when we feel that the culture is becoming more hostile to our faith, as it is, is to fight those who oppose us and even caricature those who disagree with us as enemies of all truth and all morality. And so we rant before we relate. We shout before we listen. We've learned that anger gets more attention, rage gets higher ratings, and the harsh demonization of the enemy 
raises a lot more money. So we're drawn to leaders who exemplify not love or compassion or kindness, but who will fight on our behalf and mock and expose the enemy as worthless. And so here we are in the situation where we're not only living in this age of harshness, but we're actually capitulating to it and mirroring it and, and sometimes contributing to it in ways that are destructive to ourselves and certainly are destructive to the witness of the gospel. And this is the tra most tragic thing of all is how this reflects on God himself that we've done damage to the witness of the gospel message through the, the harshness of our rhetoric and the employment of coercion in our attempts to secure advantage. So against all this, Jesus's words in our Luke 6 reading are pretty shocking, aren't they? <laughs> Love your enemies, do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything in return. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the most high because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be kind as your heavenly father is kind. I mean, Jesus' words sound so naive, don't they? A little ridiculous. I mean, Jesus would be laughed off Capitol Hill. He would probably not even be given a platform on most Christian media outlets. I mean, kind to your enemies? Be good to those who hate you? What are you talking about, Jesus? Do you even understand the world that we live in? And yet his message is so clear. God is kind. He's kind to his enemies. He's kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. And so one of the main ways that we exhibit that we belong to this kind God is that we are kind people. Do we exhibit a supernatural kindness, especially to our enemies? This could actually be one of the most countercultural things the church could ever do in a culture of contempt. So, so let's ask ourselves, what is kindness according to the Bible? And uh, how do we cultivate it? How do we practice it? Well, if we're gonna talk about kindness to get a biblical understanding of it, we've got to talk, start with God as we always do. God in the scripture is a kind God. One of the first major disclosures of God in the Old Testament, you know, when God basically offers like his CV, like a personal bio of himself, is his declaration of himself as a kind God. So on Mount Sinai in Exodus 34, he passes in front of Moses and these words are proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and faithfulness. That word there, loving kindness, is the, is the Hebrew word chesed. I love that word. You should love that word. It, it's often translated love, sometimes faithfulness. I think most accurately, loving kindness a faithfulness, compassionate action of God towards his people. That's the first thing that he wants Moses and his people to know about him. This becomes a bedrock refrain in the Old Testament that God's people praise God for. So in Psalm 107, throughout the Psalms, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His hased, his loving kindness endures forever. God is a God of kindness whose heart is always oriented towards the good of his people and the good of the world. Now we, of course, you might be thinking, see plenty of God's anger, especially in the Old Testament. And you might be wondering, what about that? Well, um, what's important to see is that God does get angry, but his anger is never capricious or vindictive. It is more like the anger of a parent who is moving out towards, towards the child in love. He, he does punish his people, but again, it's always for the sake of restoring them to himself. So we see in Isaiah 54, 
In a surge of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. God is kind and he is always moving towards his people in compassionate love. Now in the New Testament, of course, we see God's kindness most supremely expressed in the person of Jesus. Jesus is kindness incarnate. And so we see him walking among us, saving and healing and teaching, but it's always with the most astonishing kindness. He reaches out to lepers who are otherwise ostracized. His heart goes out to widows and children. He rebukes the powerful and advocates for the weak. Jesus is kind and he embodies the kindness of God. And the gospel itself is described as kind. And so Paul says in Titus chapter three, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. That's contempt right there. But when the kindness and love of God, our savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Y'all, the whole gospel is described as God's kindness, that when we were ungrateful and wicked, as we all are, as when we were turned away, when we were in rebellion against God, God in his kindness moved towards us in love to come among us, to live for us, to die for us, to rise for us, to promise a new future of hope for us. God's grace is manifested to us as kindness. And now scripture says, you who have received his kindness, now be a vessel of that kindness for the world. So God says to his people in the Old Testament, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To do justice. Yeah, to, to stand up for what's right, but to do it also loving kindness and to walk humbly with your God, Micah 6, 8. In the wisdom literature, we see the importance of kindness, especially towards the vulnerable. This is astonishing. Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors and glorifies God. Our kindness to, 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 especially the vulnerable, glorifies God. And then in the New Testament, Paul commands us to be kind and compassionate to one another. Kids, I know that you've learned that verse recently. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other as God in Christ forgave you. And of course, Jesus himself, we've already seen, exhorts his people to be different by loving their enemies those who will not or cannot reciprocate because Jesus says, when we live that way, we most exemplify and resemble God who loves those who hate him. So God is kind, God is kind. And he, one of the great callings of God's people is to manifest the kindness of God to one another in the world. But what does that really mean, y'all? What does that really mean? Kindness has experienced a bit of a surge of popularity in recent years. Um, I remember when I was a kid, there was this campaign, you know, practice random acts of kindness. Remember that? Um, nowadays, we see these little signs everywhere that say, be kind. See them um, hanging all over the place. Movies like the movie Wonder um, have promoted the practice of, of kindness. But what is kindness exactly? Is it just being nice? Is it being polite? Is it synonymous with, you know, Southern charm and Southern hospitality, what, 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 is, what is kindness? It sounds a little fluffy, doesn't it? 
Well, as we've seen in our study of scripture, if we want to understand what kindness is, we've, we've got to look at the kindness of God. I, I found some great definitions of kindness this week. Um, here's Jerry Bridges. He says, kindness is a sincere desire for the happiness of others, an inner disposition created by the Holy Spirit that causes us to be sensitive to the needs of others. Um, Arthur Brooks, who I quoted earlier, says, willing, kindness is willing the good of the other. Uh, Maxie Dunham, who's a pastor in the Methodist church, says kindness is the virtue of the person whose neighbor's good is as dear as his own. Now, note that none of these people define kindness as like a personality trait. Like some people are nice and kind and some people are you know, mean and abrasive. All of them define kindness more as a orientation of the will towards the good of the other that issues forth in action compassionate action for the other. I think I, a good definition that I'd like to offer is that kindness is an orientation of the will for the other's good that is a compassionate, other-directed generosity. Compassionate, other-directed generosity. It is a commitment to meet the physical, emotional, and psychological needs of the other. It is a commitment to treat the other, especially the enemy, with compassion and dignity treating them not as a problem or an issue, but as a person. It humanizes rather than demonizes. It listens rather than dominates. It serves rather than controls. Kindness is a compassionate, other-centered generosity. You know, last week um, we talked about patience, if y'all remember. And what we said about patience is that patience delays judgment to open up time and space for redemption. Do y'all, do y'all remember that class? You have a, <laughs> can, can you remember us talking about that? Um, but here's what I want to say this week. Patience isn't enough because you can be patient, but still be a jerk, right? You can be patient and still have, be harsh or carry bitterness or contempt in the spirit. And so it's patience plus kindness because what kindness does is kindness, patience creates the time and space. And then kindness is what fills that space to actually create the opportunity for real redemption and change. I, you know, think about Romans 2. Paul says, God's kindness leads you to repentance. Now think about that. It is absolutely vital that you get that because if you don't, you'll miss the gospel. God's, we, we sometimes think God hates me, but if I repent, then he'll be kind, then he'll love me. But that's not what the gospel is. That's religion. The gospel says, God is kind to the wicked and the ungrateful. And it is his kindness that melts our hearts and leads us to repentance. His kindness is first, which then produces. So, the, so patience creates the window. Kindness creates the opportunity for grace. One of my favorite stories, I think, that exemplifies this is the story of Rosaria Butterfield. Um, Rosaria was a lesbian atheist professor at a small liberal arts college. And she took a special delight in excoriating um, evangelical Christians. And one day she wrote a scathing review of a Christian movement. I think it was like the Promise Keepers or something. And so all of the emails and letters started roll, kind of coming in. Um, and some of them were, were fan mail of, you know, fellow progressives cheering her on. And then most of them were hate mail, mostly of Christians, you know, telling her what an idiot she is. And so she was 
gleefully, you know, sorting them in fan mail, hate mail, fan mail, hate mail, hate mail, hate mail, fan mail. Then she one day got this letter from a local pastor and he was clearly, clearly not in agreement with her. You know, he was posing curious and challenging questions, but the tone and the spirit of his letter was so utterly for her. She said it was the kindest letter of opposition. Well, frankly, she said it was one of the kindest letters she's ever received, period. And so she didn't know what to do with it. She didn't know what box to put in it. (laughs) She didn't know whether it was hate mail or fan mail. And so they developed a friendship and they began to dialogue and, and meet up. And he, at one point, invited her over for dinner. And it was so clear to her that he was extremely thoughtful about creating a place of hospitality for her. He had turned the air conditioner off because he knew that she was a very uh, strong environmentalist. He had been extremely thoughtful about choosing ingredients in the food that they served, knowing that her, her restrictions were really important to her. She was deeply moved by his kindness. And in the end, she came to trust in Jesus and became a follower of Jesus. And ultimately, she said, what brought her to Jesus was not an argument. Certainly not one of those hate letters. It was kindness. Kindness leads to repentance and faith. So what would it mean for us to practice kindness, brothers and sisters? I I sound like a broken record, but I'm just going to keep saying it. This virtue, like all others, is both gift and task. It's something we receive in the gospel from God himself, the kindness of God's heart. But then it's something that we actually cultivate, that we put to work. Dallas Willard often said, grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. We don't earn grace, we receive it freely without any merit. And yet when we give, we're given grace, we're called to put it into action through sanctified effort by cooperating with the spirit to cultivate the fruit of the spirit in us, putting to death the flesh, cultivating the fruit of the spirit. So, so how do we do that? Kindness is not just a personality trait, stop thinking of it that way. Think of it rather as a muscle that needs to be exercised and to be put into practice as you seek to orient your life to the people around you, to be other oriented. So let's talk about like just two simple areas where we can practice kindness. I saw Jerry um, Wiberly in the beginning of the chat today, for those of you watching online wrote, kindness begins at home. That's what I wanna talk about first because you you might say, well, what about kindness to our enemies? Well, that's where a lot of your enemies are usually uh, in, your, in your home, right? Uh, so we got to begin there. You'd never be kind to the enemy, your political enemy, if you can't be kind to your household enemy. You know, the pandemic has us all on edge. We're stuck with each other and, you know, it's, pre, it's exacerbated pre-existing tensions in our relationships. So let me just talk about a few relationships. Parents, um, it is so tempting. I've seen, I've seen it all over social media and other things to talk bad about your kids to talk about how annoying they are, um, how frustrated you are with them, how, how hard things are at home, and they are. But I just think that we've got to be, take great care in the way that we talk to and about our children. Um, it's vital that we prioritize kindness with our kids in the way we talk to them, the way we discipline them, the way that we address them. If you have resentment, contempt in your heart towards your children, it will be conveyed in your tone and your spirit regardless of what words you might be using. It's also vital parents that we prioritize the formation of kindness in our children above 
prioritizing success, getting into great schools, performance. You know, my friend um, Jim Singleton recalls that growing up as a kid, every Sunday he would come home from church, from Sunday school, and his mom would ask him three questions. First, she would say, were there any new children in your Sunday school today? Two, if yes, did they look happy or did they look uncomfortable or sad? Three, if they were sad, was there anything you could have done to help them? She asked these three questions to him every single Sunday. So much so that 50 years later, he remembers them with crystal clarity. I love that rather than prioritizing what Jim was learning about God, which is important, she prioritized whether he was behaving like a God. And guess what? Jim is one of the kindest people that I know. So parents, let's prioritize formation of kindness. That is a radically countercultural thing we can do in a culture of contempt and performance. Kids, kids, listen. Wow, what a great laboratory you have to put the virtue of kindness through the power of Jesus in you with your brothers and sisters. Seriously. Um, see what happens if you decide every day this week, you're gonna do something to put one of your siblings before yourself. Let them choose the biggest and best hamburger. Let them get in the front seat before you do. Let them get the last cookie. Kindness is something that you have to practice at school. Um, rather than looking just at your own needs, look for kids that are left out, that are sad, that are hurt, and ask what you can do to move towards them. Kindness is something that you practice. In marriage, um, kindness is one of the most important and overlooked virtues and practices in marriage. John Gottman is a renowned psychologist who has studied tens of thousands of couples and what makes for a happy marriage. His research is so well-tested that when he studies a young married couple, he is able to predict whether they get, will, will get a divorce with a 94% success rate. And the number one factor is kindness. He writes, kindness is the most important predicator of satisfaction and stability in a relationship. He's developed this little thing that he calls um, relational bids, B-I-D-S, bids. Bids are small invitations that one partner offers to the other for emotional connection. So for example, this is an example he gives. Say the husband loves birds. I like this example because I love birds. Say the husband loves birds and he notices a goldfinch fly across the yard. Look at that beautiful bird outside, he says. Now what's happening here is he's not just commenting on the bird. He's requesting a response from his wife. It's a bid for a momentary emotional connection. That's what it is. Now the wife in turn has a choice. She can respond by what Gottman calls turning toward. She looks up, oh, wow, that, that is lovely. Thanks, thanks for pointing that out. Just a small turning toward, or she can respond with turning away, which is either not responding at all, you know, just not looking up from your phone, just grunting a response or actually responding with hostility. Stop interrupting me. I'm trying to get this done. What Gottman noticed is that couples who respond to these hundreds of little bids with kindness and generosity are the relationships that last. While the presence of contempt, criticism, and hostility virtually guarantees the end of the relationship, either literally or emotionally, right? The husbands and wives, the tiny ways that you are actually responding to each other in your daily life, like these tiny little seemingly insignificant things in the kitchen are actually sowing seeds for the future love of your relationship. Kindness is that powerful. 
kindness in the home. What about kindness towards others outside of the home? Well, I could have a whole other sermon about that. So let me just mention this one thing, our speech, our speech. One of the most important things we can do is attend to kindness in our speech. Certainly we need to think about our words. Our words, as the book of James reminds us, have the power to heal or destroy. But it's not just words, it's our tone. It's our tone. My dad used to teach communications at University of Tennessee. And all the time he would say to my sister and me, don't forget kids, your words is only 7% of your communication. (laughs) He would say this again and again. He would say 93% of what you communicate is mediated through your body language and your tone, especially your tone. Tone's almost everything in communication. Proverbs 15.1 says, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A harsh tone, even if what you're, the words themselves are nice, can be as malicious as words of hatred. So I just wanna ask you, have you done an audit on your tone recently in the way that you speak? I mean, all of us are dealing with a low boil of frustration under the surface. And I know for me that often just kind of results in harshness and the way we speak to each other and how we respond. This is especially the case online when you're a bit um, separated from the impact of your word and tones. It's now the case with our with social exchange, uh, social, so, um, on our social media and even our emails where harshness and contempt is now almost the expected form of exchange, almost the lingua franca of our language. And yet Paul says still, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, which I would say includes tone, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Our speech, especially when we're not able to be physically close, our speech is one of the main venues where we can cultivate a countercultural kindness. So let me close. When it comes to our relationships with one another in the church, and especially those outside the church, those who oppose us, one of our highest callings is kindness, both in words and actions. When our nerves are fraying, when opinions are divided, when leaders make decisions we disagree with, when we just feel worn out and don't want to engage anymore, Jesus calls us to a counterculture, supernatural kindness, a radical orientation towards the other's good. Kindness is not weak. It is not a frothy niceness. It is not being soft on your convictions. It is not being a pushover. Kindness is a deep commitment to compassionate, other-centered generosity, treating each other, our neighbor, and even our enemy with the same compassion and love that our kind God offers to us. I believe, brothers and sisters, that this is what the world is aching for. This is why there are so many signs exhorting us all to be kind because the world is longing to see a community that is kind. I learned this week that because the Greek word for Christ, Christos, is so similar to the Greek word for kind, which is Christos, many people mistakenly called Jesus's first century followers, the kind ones, the kind ones. Because while the harsh world around them was hated their enemies and killed those that opposed them, Christians loved one another, loved their enemies, and even laid down their lives for those that hated them. They were the kind ones. Let's bring that back, family. Let's recover that. 
that we might be the kind ones. And that will only happen through the supernatural work of God as we walk deeper and deeper into his kindness for us. Let me close with this quote from Dane Ortland. Only as we drink down the kindness of the heart of Christ, will we leave in our wake everywhere we go, the aroma of heaven and die one day having startled the world with glimpses of a divine kindness too great to be boxed in by what we deserve. Startling the world with glimpses of divine kindness. May that be so for us. Let's, let's pray. Just want to invite you now to speak to God. Maybe, um, maybe just think of one person in your life that you are having a particularly difficult time practicing kindness with right now. And just name that person to God. Confess your contempt or your bitterness or your self-centeredness, whatever it might be. And ask God for help. Ask the Holy Spirit for help that you might partner with the Spirit in your life, keeping in step with him, that you might cultivate an other-centered generosity towards that person. That's for help now. We thank you, Father, that you are so kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Thank you that you, your kindness has been expressed to us in the gospel, that your kindness has issued in the gospel the grace of Jesus and that has led us into repentance. And God, help us to be people who receive that kindness every day and then who exhibit and manifest that same kindness to the world and especially to our enemies. Our culture needs that. Our society needs that. Our community needs that. We need your help. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.